Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corrine Pettit, and I'm here today with two amazing healthcare providers, dermatologist Dr. Erin Bowe and rheumatologist Dr. Elizabeth Perkins, to discuss the connection between psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Dr. Aaron Bowe is the chair of the Department of Dermatology at Tulane University School of Medicine, as well as the Joseph Chastain Endowed Chair of Clinical Dermatology and Professor of Dermatology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, where she specializes in psoriasis and photobiology. Dr. Elizabeth Perkins is the founder of the Rheumatology Care Center in Birmingham, Alabama, where she helps those who face challenging musculoskeletal conditions such as psoriatic arthritis find the right treatment to maximize function for overall joint health. Together, Dr. Perkins and Dr. Bowe are the ideal team to address living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Well, welcome Dr. Bowe and Dr. Perkins. It's a pleasure to have you on Soundbite. Thanks for taking the time to address the connection between psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So while separate diseases, the two are related. So Dr. Bose, starting with you, can you explain what are the common underlying factors between the two diseases? Sure, thank you. There's a number of factors that make these diseases similar, yet there are some that make them different. And one of them are some of the genetic markers. With patients who have psoriasis, there are a number of different genetic mutations or polymorphisms that can occur. And those changes in the genetic expression result in expression of some inflammatory cytokines which mediate each of the diseases. So when we look at arthritis and psoriasis, we see that they share common inflammatory cytokines that cause the diseases to become apparent. And those are really linked to some of the genetic disparities. We also have other underlying features like environmental triggers that can contribute. But I think the genetic markers are the ones that make both of these rather similar as well as make them distinct entities. Great, that's a great explanation. And Dr. Perkins, is there anything you'd like to add to that? And I think it's really interesting how epidemiologists and scientists love to debate this issue. What are the factors and how strongly are they linked? The HLA-B haplotypes definitely play a big role. And one of the missing links for psoriatic arthritis is to really nail down these different genetic risks and biomarkers. The more we get a hold of these, the more we'll understand why psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis present so differently. I think that's one of the reasons that psoriatic arthritis is a more complex disease is it can present really different phenotypes. And as we learn more about those genetic risk factors, we'll probably better understand those differences in our patients and clinic. And I think one thing that I would tell patients is you don't want to get hung up on the genetics because you can have a genetic risk factor and not necessarily develop disease. And you can also have those certain genetic screeners absent and still have onset of disease. So it's important to just have a very practical common sense approach, which is going by the patient's history, exam, and other things that we assess to know if you really have the disease or not. Dr. Perkins, are there shared risk factors for the development of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis? 
in all of our rheumatic diseases, there is a strong component of both genetics and environmental risk factors. Smoking really increases the burden of all of our diseases. And so even though genetics and family history play a strong central role, such as in lupus and rheumatoid, family history seems to be an even stronger predictor in psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. It seems like when you go back to clinic, rheumatoid and lupus patients have more sporadic disease in families where as soon as I see a patient with PSA, I end up seeing several more of their family members. And they are often very different from each other. For example, one family member might just have psoriasis and another may have really painful tendons, swollen joints, and then they remember grandmother had these mutilated hands and deformities. So I would also emphasize that where it runs very strong in families, it can be different. And so it's important to keep that in mind that this disease is on a spectrum and can come out in different ways in family members. The pathology for psoriasis and even psoriatic arthritis involves a number of different cytokines. If you look at psoriasis, there are numerous different patterns of psoriasis and patients actually will have a characteristic form. So just as in psoriatic arthritis, there are a number of different presentations. Psoriasis has multiple ones as well. So some people just get gut tape psoriasis, others will have just scalp, etc. And so that's probably linked to the genes. We have some 48 different genetic alterations that can give you clinical psoriasis, but each person doesn't have all 48 of those. And so that's where I think our family history comes in. If you look at that, you'll see that family history is very important for psoriasis, but environmental triggers, drug history, and other different comorbidities also contribute to your risk factors for developing psoriasis. So we really need to think about the pathophysiology of psoriasis, really to understand the clinical. And what do I mean by that? You look at obesity. Patients who have psoriasis, a much higher incidence of obesity, a higher incidence of atherosclerosis, a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease. And all those disparate diseases are mediated by inflammatory cytokines, but not all the same. So I think we have to kind of think of the whole person, all the genetics, all the environment, when you start talking about risk factors. And I think that it's very complex and we're probably not gonna figure it out right away about that, but I think this is where we need to start thinking. Dr. Bo, I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that is fascinating is that we've learned that the patterns of severe psoriasis can help predict more severe forms of psoriatic arthritis and help rheumatologists really target treatment. So for example, we know that if a patient presents with scalp, genital, or nail involvement, they may experience more severe and erosive disease. Another important modifier that you mentioned was the role of BMI and mental wellness. They are very strong clinical modifiers that have been supported with research where if you lower your BMI, you will have lower psoriatic disease. And you often get longer periods of remission when you eat healthy nutrition that's low inflammatory. In addition, we find that patients who target good control of mental health, depression, anxiety, less flares. So when we talk about comorbidities, we may talk about smoking 
We may talk about weight management. We may talk about mental wellness. There's so many other components in your control. So sometimes when you feel frustrated that the genetic risk factors you couldn't control and you can't figure out why your disease is more severe and why it flares, there's some great wellness approaches and things within your control to lower your disease. And when we talk to our patients, I think you hit the nail on the head about severity of disease. We know that severity of disease does correlate with the risks for psoriatic arthritis. Earlier presentation of psoriasis will also correlate with that. If you think about severe disease, it doesn't mean just how much of your skin is involved. It's just what you mentioned. It's hand-foot psoriasis, it's genital psoriasis, scalp psoriasis, as well as your overall BSA or body surface area affected. So severe disease can manifest with a little bit of psoriasis, but it's intensely severe, which increases the risk of psoriatic arthritis, as well as other comorbidities. If you have more severe disease, you have more systemic inflammation. And until we curb systemic inflammation, not only in joints, in skin, in the heart, in the liver, you're not going to have a handle on your disease. So modifying things that you can, i.e. lifestyle, obesity, cut down on alcohol consumption, smoking, do regular exercise, all contribute to decreasing systemic inflammation. So I kind of tell people, this is the whole picture. It's not just your skin, not just your joints. It's you're the whole person. And until you realize you can control only certain things, then you really won't have a handle. And then you actually increase your mental burden from this because psoriasis can be quite depressing. Sometimes you feel helpless and you can't control much. So we have to emphasize there are things that you can decrease and improve so that psoriasis gets better and easier to treat. It does not go away. And I have to tell that to everybody because getting on these great medicines that we have decreases systemic inflammation. And it's only my personal opinion is that if you get patients on disease modifying treatments early in the course of psoriasis, you may decrease your risk or your chances of developing arthritis later. And it's all because we decrease inflammation. That's great. And that actually answered my next question about severity. So thank you. That was really in-depth. And Dr. Perkins, is it possible to develop psoriatic arthritis before a diagnosis of psoriasis is made? And if so, how is the diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis made? So you really kind of made an important point about the prevalence of the skin and the joint. Then science guys love to point out how many people with psoriasis get PSA and how many Patients with PSA have skin disease. And the truth is you can have either disease without the other or they can happen at different times. And I think that's probably really important that patients understand that they can have one flaring and not the other. They don't have to go together. We do find that patients with PSA, the majority will have had psoriasis at some point in their history. And so the first thing is to collect a great history, to really have good communication with your doctor on the swollen and tender joint history, the inflammatory features that don't make sense, that don't stand out for wear and tear arthritis. And when you do have a history of any skin disease, we love to hear more about that. So we incorporate that history, a careful exam, 
the labs, and lots of different imaging studies depending on the stage of your disease. Again, that family history is key. And when we talk to patients, we're really trying to find these different patterns of psoriatic disease, which can come out in the joints, the tendons, inflammatory back pain. And then there's other organs of the body that can actually pop out with our diseases. When your labs are normal and your imaging are normal, which is very common in psoriatic arthritis, it doesn't mean you don't have anything wrong. It just means we rely more heavily on these physical exam and history components. This is where rheumatologists and dermatologists are trained. This is our specialty training to kind of see and find this. We always get really excited if we can find a little peak of skin because that gives us the clue we're looking for, even if it's not the reason you came to see a rheumatologist. But oftentimes it's kind of, a, again, fitting in a pattern that we really need to hone in on. Yeah, it sounds like there's many factors to consider when diagnosing psoriatic arthritis. So Dr. Bo, in comparison, how is a diagnosis of psoriasis made and what symptoms indicate a referral to a rheumatologist is needed? Well, I think that, as Dr. Perkins said, we rely a lot on our clinical acumen in, in diagnosing psoriasis. Oftentimes, you can just look at a patient and know the classic psoriasis plaques of the elbows, the knees, the symmetric bilateral appearance of it, and just characteristically what it looks like. But there are instances where psoriasis doesn't look like psoriasis, especially if it's been treated or even potentially mistreated. So I think family history does help, but I don't rely a lot on family history in diagnosing psoriasis. I look more at the clinical pattern. The psoriasis in many people is itchy, but there's a few patients who have non-itchy psoriasis. So I think in general, derms usually rely on the clinical pattern to get the diagnosis. Occasionally, and it's really only occasionally, would we want to biopsy psoriasis because there are mimickers of psoriasis. So I think that those are very, very important. If we look at overall, not only skin plaques, if you look at the nails, that will help us sometimes because pitting of the nails or separation of the distal nail bed are all markers of psoriasis in people who may not have a lot of frank psoriatic plaques. I do like to screen all my psoriasis patients for arthritis, and some of that screening you can do simply with a good history. You can also do it with a good physical. So if you have your psoriasis patient who have a little bit of a, a swollen toe, a swollen finger, that to me is like I hit the nail on the head because it's usually dactylitis. But in general, looking at the patient, knowing that they have the skin disease, getting a history of, of stiffness in the morning, of like working out their joints and they get better as the day goes on, are all symptoms that tell me, oh, this patient may clearly have a component of inflammatory arthritis. And so then I start homing in on different questions for that. In terms of referral to a, a rheumatologist, I think that comes down to the level of comfort that the dermatologist has in treating the patient's psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Some of us do treat both, and then the really difficult or hard-to-handle ones will refer over to rheumatology. There are other dermatologists who really just want to take care of the skin, and then I think early referral to a room is very important there. Or getting the patient who has severe disease on appropriate therapy early 
this will help mitigate your risk of psoriatic arthritis or joint disease. But I think that falls into the purview of the patient's comfort level, the physician's comfort level in treating psoriasis and the arthritis. And fortunately for us, many of the medicines that we have available to us today, which are all super phenomenal in clearing the skin, and most of them are very, very good at improving and delaying joint disease, I think picking the right medicine early in the disease process will help us treat both before either one gets super bad. Great. Thank you. And this next question is for you both, but we'll start with you, Dr. Perkins. Is there any connection between where psoriasis plaques may form and what joints may be affected by psoriatic arthritis? We do see some very interesting connections here. On exam, when I find nail psoriasis or the pitting changes, like Dr. Bo was mentioning, you will sometimes find enthesitis, a sausage digit or a painful joint nearby. And that has a lot to do with the pathophysiology of where these cytokines and inflammation spread from the nail bed to the nearby soft tissues and structures around the joint. And so I like to keep that in mind. And that's probably why my psoriatic arthritis patients are always curious why I'm digging around their nails and their toes, looking for those clues. I try to keep in mind that when patients experience the sensitive areas with psoriasis or the scalp, that they may have that more severe disease and that we keep an open mind, kind of an open ears conversation around aggressive disease. So where they may not feel their skin, it warrants more aggressive disease, perhaps their joints may need it. And I think we alluded to this several times, and that is that we want to treat the whole patient. We want to treat skin and joints together. And that little red flag of a swollen joint or a peak of psoriasis is always our outward way of knowing when something isn't well controlled. I don't put as much stock on nail involvement, although I clearly know it's in the rheumatology literature and it's in the criteria. If you look at psoriasis patients as a group, no arthritis, almost 90 plus percent of them have nail pitting and onycholysis. So they do have nail changes. So I look for that even in people who don't have psoriasis elsewhere. And for me, that's not as big a red flag for thinking they're going to get psoriatic arthritis as having a history or currently when you're seeing a swollen toe, a swollen finger, or you squeeze their fingers or their hands with a handshake and they tell you, oh, that, you know, like kind of makes them wince because you're shaking their hand. So for me, I use subtle things like squeeze. I use pressure over a joint to make me wonder if these people don't have early psoriatic arthritis. The Scalp involvement, the severe disease are things that just turn me on to saying this patient's at risk for psoriatic arthritis, pits or not, or onycholysis or not. But I think the nails can get a little bit overused because truthfully, all psoriatic patients have this findings in their nail. But again, I think how it got started is it tells you that might be an index that this patient can have significant or severe disease which then puts you at more risk for psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Dr. Perkins, for someone who has psoriasis, what symptoms are important to share with you as a rheumatologist? If you have psoriasis, 
really whether it's mild or severe, whether it required a doctor or not, you need to know that there is a connection between your skin, your joints, and your tendons. You also need to know that even when the psoriasis is gone, you can develop signs and symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Those include tender and swollen joints. You can have significant fatigue that doesn't make sense. And that pain predominates when you're still at rest, such as in bed or sitting at your desk. It's often worse in the morning and gets better as you get warmed up and get moving. And we really ask around those inflammatory features of joint pain, because let's face it, there are all kinds of forms of arthritis, and we want to make sure we get you the right diagnosis for which arthritis you have. Be aware that psoriatic arthritis can be misdiagnosed. It's often very frustrating when patients have been told they had fibromyalgia or gout or rheumatoid, and really it's a very different illness. And nowadays, the treatment differs. If you have psoriatic arthritis, you will have a completely different approach to treatment than those mentioned. And so I think it's important that if you have swollen and tender joints with fatigue, a history of rashes or not, these could be connected to psoriatic disease and to mention that to your doctor. And Dr. Perkins, there are biologics that are approved for the treatment of both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. How effective are these at treating both diseases? Would it be more effective to have two separate treatments, one for psoriasis and one for psoriatic arthritis? Well, the treatment options for psoriatic arthritis have finally gotten bigger than our treatment options for even rheumatoid arthritis. We have so many classes, so many mechanisms of action now, and I think it's a really exciting time. Dr. Bo and I would agree that we are always looking for the home run medication, the one drug wonder that will treat the whole patient head to toe. And sometimes we land on that. But for some people, and especially the ones with higher burden of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, they may need combination treatment. And so it sometimes takes a combination of topicals and systemic treatments. And the systemic treatments can range from oral therapies to the newer biologics. But I think we are often using everything we have available to match with the patient's goals as well. I always co-manage and share my psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis patients with dermatology partly because many of these therapies require skin surveillance. They need to be looked at yearly for any other skin issues. And so I think it's always rewarding for the patient and the team to collaborate with each other. But I think that the goal is always less is more, but to treat to target and be aggressive where you need to be. And Dr. Bo, how important is it to find the right treatment for psoriasis and to make adjustments when a treatment is no longer effective? I think it's very important to find the right treatment. And in general, I do think the right treatment is the one that the patient responds best to. What we like to try to do as our treatment goals is to pick a treatment where we see a response within about 12 weeks. So obviously, we'd like to see if patients have a change in their BSA. Ideally, we would like at the end of three months to see a BSA of less than 1% or 1% or less, and to maintain that response. So our goal really is to get the patient clear in as quick a time as possible. I like to wait at least about 12 weeks to make sure that we get maximum response. So if we can improve 
or decrease the amount of body surface area affected to around 1%, that's the best. However, I do like to say that if patients are very happy with their response to therapy and they're tolerating it, but they don't have less than 1% involvement, maybe they have 3%, maybe they have less, sometimes more, I think working with the patient to see what they feel is their best response is important. You don't want to treat a patient and not get enough improvement that the patient exhibits benefit. So a good goal is to have a BSA of around 1% by three months and maintain that clear. I think it's very important early on to get the right treatment, which kind of goes down that road of making sure that we advocate for our patients to get the best treatment early in the disease process so we do not have the sequelae that we know can develop from untreated psoriasis. I think that many of the right treatments for psoriasis will fall into the individual. So as Dr. Perkins mentioned, we have multiple classes of drugs that treat both disease processes, and some treat one disease process better than the other. What I tend to like to do is make sure if the patient has very extensive skin disease, I do target that first because I do find that much of the systemic inflammation that's manifested from the skin disease spills over into joints. And if you can get the bulk of the inflammation down, you can sometimes tease out what the joint disease is. If their front line and complaints are more joint oriented, I do like to go to those that address the PSA better initially. But the key here is to get both of them under control. And while rheumatology, I think in the past, has kind of been pattern of treatment using multiple therapies, dermatologists have kind of been monotherapy oriented. I think we need to change a little bit and think there are going to be patients who need more than one modality to treat, whether it's topicals and injectables, maybe it's an injectable for the skin because their skin responds to one because they have a genetic defect there, but their joints are a different disease process, so we can overlap. We haven't gotten there yet, but I think in the future, we may need to. But I think the key is to get to the bulk of the inflammation first, target that, and that becomes your best treatment. Unfortunately, we don't have any tests that can tell us now what genetic defect the patient really has. And by defect, I don't mean that it's wrong. It's just an altered gene. So it might make too much TNF. It might make too much IL-17. And so we haven't come to the personalized medicine yet. Patient X makes too much of this cytokine, so let's block that. I'm hoping that that day will come when before we pick a, a treatment for a patient, we can find out what all of the internal milieu is so we can target specifically, safely, and so targeted that nothing else gets damaged in the process. And so I think that's our goal as physician scientists is to find out how to tailor all of these great medicines so that you don't have to go through five treatment options before you hit that home run. And so I think working with your dermatologist, your rheumatologist there in going through all your joint pain history, where it started, your family history will help us in trying to get to the one best treatment. But as I tell everybody, there's one best treatment is the one that works the best. And so you keep plugging until you get the one best. And sometimes it's on your first shot. Sometimes we go through multiple medicines before we get there.
Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Perkins, we just heard from Dr. Bo about the treat to target goals for psoriasis. Is the treat to target approach also used in managing psoriatic arthritis? Yes, historically, the treat to target term in our world originated with rheumatoid arthritis and really has been extensively studied in that disease state. We have picked it up in our language for treating psoriatic arthritis. And essentially what we mean is to get all practitioners on the same page for how to define well-controlled disease and use goal-oriented behaviors to change outcomes and improve outcomes for patients. In all fairness, it's less well-defined in psoriatic arthritis, but we still look at pain scales, function, fatigue, swollen joints, and damage to calculate an objective disease activity measure. One major limitation is that experts still are debating what elements are most important in psoriatic arthritis since it is unique and different from our other arthritises. Another limitation in psoriatic arthritis, as we keep frustratingly confess, is that we don't have the good biomarkers yet for PSA. And then finally, I think the bottom line is how do you get the best treat to target goal that incorporates patient reported outcomes? And I think we are all hopeful that the future will incorporate things like what matters most to a patient, how itchy they are, how fatigued they are, and work productivity. And I think if we land in the right place on treat to target, it will incorporate all of those a little more sophisticated way. And personalized medicine is an area where you not only bring in what the patient values and goals are, But again, back to how can we get the right drug sooner, faster? Because when you treat any inflammatory disease, it's much easier to control and you have better prognosis when you treat it early and aggressively. That's great information. So switching gears here a little bit, Dr. Bo, I've heard rheumatologists say that the best way to prevent psoriatic arthritis is to ensure that the skin is clear of psoriasis. Do you agree with that statement? I wish it were that easy. It's a tough question because we don't have that data. We've had the biologics around since the mid to late 90s, and I think what we really need to do is look at the natural evolution of psoriatic arthritis, which we really don't have a good handle on. I think, however, as a general statement, if patients have bad psoriasis and no arthritis initially, I do think it is important to get the skin under control because we have, again, all this systemic inflammation that will spill over to the joints. But I tend to view these diseases as a little bit different. Yes, they share a lot of commonality, but I do treat them differently. And I think it is important to get the skin clear. If you have a little psoriasis and a lot of joint pains, you're still smoldering with inflammation. So I am not certain that I can say that I prevent development of psoriatic arthritis by treating my patients with psoriasis early on. I like to believe I am, and so I always do that. But I think that in general, the key is to clear both and try to do it effectively, efficiently, and early on so that you do not allow for the setup of getting so much inflammation that the joints get destroyed. So I don't know that we have the answer to this question yet, but I like to think that I am helping to mitigate the development of arthritis by keeping the skin clear. But I can tell you, I've had people have got the skin totally clear and their joints still smolder. So I, I really think that there's more to the picture than just these two, one causes the other. I think that they're separate yet similar. 
And Dr. Perkins, as a rheumatologist, do you agree with this concept? Is treating psoriasis aggressively a preventative strategy? Dr. Bo and I couldn't be more passionate about remission and treat to target. I think we love a low disease activity patient, but when we see a little rash or we see a swollen joint, it keeps us on our toes and keeps us asking questions. It's really important after years of doing this to help a patient accept that flares will happen. Even when you're on an excellent treatment plan that's doing a great job, you will get rash in in the winter. Psoriasis loves the summer and hates the winter. Same thing with the joints. You will have a swollen joint even on a great plan. And so we need to be really clear with patients that even when you're on a great plan, you can have flares. So I would say that even when you get some psoriasis or a swollen joint, it doesn't mean you have to turn your treatment plan upside down. But what you'll find is that Dr. Bo and I are really going for low inflammation, low disease activity that we know will improve mobility, prevent damage to the joints, lower cardiovascular disease, and lead to a healthier, happy patient. And I think that's our goal each time we pick these therapies and aim for systemic treatment. Dr. Perkins, it's an excellent point she makes. Even on the best of medicines, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis will at times flare. And that's expected because this is a chronic disease and it's tied to the immune response. So I think our job as physicians is to educate the patient that we need to distinguish between flares and failure of the drug to maintain clearance. And you don't want to give up your existing treatment regimen just because you flare. If you get sick, if you get infections, if you get an allergy to something, your disease may flare. If you get under a lot of stress, your disease may flare because it's tied to the immune response. So understanding that from the get-go, I think will make patients a little bit more tolerant when they flare. And I tell people all the time, I don't shoot to get you 100% clear and keep you 100% clear because I will fail. But if I can keep you always on the right target so that you get a flare, you treat the flare, your medicine's overall working, you stick with these medicines because I do think that there's a lot of importance to just getting rid of systemic inflammation. You'll decrease cardiovascular risk, the risks of insulin resistance and other comorbidities by getting rid of systemic inflammation. And so I think that should be our goal in terms of educating our patients so that they don't jump from one drug to another because they get a little spot of psoriasis. And Dr. Perkins said it perfectly, is that you will flare. And you go to your doctor and you work through your flare. And if they need to change the medicine, they will. But sometimes the medicine's fine and you just take care of it in turn. Yeah, that's a great point. And so my last question is for you both, and we'll start with you, Dr. Bo, and it's one of my favorite questions. Are there any exciting developments in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis that those who have psoriatic disease can look forward to? I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. We are so lucky. I tell everybody, you are so lucky to have psoriasis in this day and age because we have so many options and we have new options coming into play. And some of those new options involve the development of new medicines that actually not only clear psoriasis of the skin, like incredibly nine out of 10 people getting clear with their skin within eight weeks of being on therapy. We also have medicines that actually help impact 
these comorbidities. There's a, a drug coming out that's an IL-17 AF inhibitor that actually showed prospectively, so ongoing studies looking at resolution of atherosclerotic plaques in arteries because those patients have psoriasis, their psoriasis clears, and these atherosclerotic plaques resolve over time when staying on the drug. So this is telling us that there's numerous avenues to pursue in not only improving our psoriasis, our psoriatic arthritis, but improving comorbidities such as atherosclerotic heart disease, atherosclerosis in general, cardiovascular events. So I think it's very exciting in terms of our new potential drugs. Our biggest goal, I think, is to convince insurance companies to cover the cost and give the patients the drugs that they need that can help improve not only psoriasis, arthritis, but other comorbidities that you may have as a consequence. And there's good drugs that are already there. It's just getting access to the patients for use. There is so much hope in this disease space right now. First, I'll say that compared to five years ago, we understand psoriatic arthritis better. More healthcare entities, more specialties are recognizing and seeing psoriatic arthritis sooner, faster. And I think that's making an impact on the field. Where prevalence and incidence used to be lower, we know that it's been underdiagnosed and there's actually been a big movement to identifying these patients sooner, faster. And I think that is a very optimistic area of this disease state. The other thing that's happening in our world is that patient advocacy is stronger. People are more aware, they're coming together. Talent and groups are partnering and advocating better for patients, whether that's in patient advocacy organizations like the Psoriasis Foundation or in government. Worldwide, we're seeing a better job at taking care of patients through patient advocacy. And then the other area, as Dr. Bo mentioned, is just the explosion of science and technology for this disease state. And I think these new treatment targets are very exciting where we can increase benefit and lower risk. We can also address patient goals better when our science gets better. So if you wanted to learn more about those treatments, you could go to psoriasis.org. There's a great link on pipeline that's always exciting to read about and look at what's on the horizon for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And last, I think it's so important that you take what you learn from website, from articles, and bring that back to your doctor. Talk about what excites you. Talk about what depresses you. Talk about the gaps in your treatment and what you want to get out of it. Because I think at the end of the day, doctors, we look for psoriasis, we look for psoriatic arthritis, but ultimately we want all of this to land on your goals. And so I would just like to thank Dr. Bo for her passion in treating both the skin and the joints. That's always refreshing. I hope every patient has a doctor like you. <laughs> also, I wanted to thank the Psoriasis Foundation for bringing us together so we could tell patients how this all works and our goals for you. Yeah, that's all really exciting. Thank you both so much. And thank you, Dr. Bo and Dr. Perkins for your insight about the evolving relationship between psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and how important it is to follow up with a healthcare provider should symptoms be present. Thank you. And I would say definitely support advocacy groups such as the National Psoriasis Foundation, because unless you as patients and we as practitioners speak up, 
we won't make any headway. And I think it's very, very important. And we're very fortunate that we have the NPF to be our advocate and our spokesperson. We need more of that. During May, which is Psoriatic Arthritis Action Month, you can request a new free e-kit to help you understand psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, along with a number of devices to help manage psoriatic arthritis and mobility challenges. To receive this new e-kit, contact the Patient Navigation Center by calling 1-800-723-9166 or by emailing education at psoriasis.org. And finally, thank you to the following sponsors who provided support on behalf of Psoriatic Arthritis Action Month activities through unrestricted educational grants. AbbVie, Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen, Novartis, and UCB. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Ghana, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.